Hello, and welcome back to Baby Shroom Pod. I'm your host, Baby Shroom, Baby, Monique, all of the above. And today, very exciting, I have Franco on the podcast. Yay! (laughs) I've been wanting to have him on for a while. We both are just so busy. And actually, this is, um, to be honest, one of the things I find the most charming and wonderful about Franco is that he is just as ambitious as I am. And we both have a lot of goals, dreams, plans that we're always working on. And not to say that we don't just chill because we do, but it's nice. I love it. Also, realizing now this may be the first episode people listen to, Franco is my husband, (laughs) which is why I'm like gagaing over him. Do people still say that anymore? I said luncheon in a work email the other day. Well, not the other day, a few weeks ago. And my coworker, who is, let's say, much older, made fun of me because she's like, that's such an old lady word. And then I thought, oh my God, do I have a lot of old lady words? Nobody tells me. (laughs) I don't know, let me know. Do I talk like an old lady, but with a sailor's mouth? Because actually that's a vibe. So maybe that's fine. I'm off track. I have Franco on the podcast. Um, so excited. We're talking about film. We talk about a couple of different films actually in this episode. Um, the main one that we're discussing is Mulholland Drive, but we also talk about Lynch's repertoire of work. I don't know if I'm using that word right. Um, we talk about Donnie Darko. We talk about Christopher Nolan. We talk about a lot of different movies, so it's fun. Um, if, if you don't know, I did study film. It was my bachelor's and I worked in film for a few years and then had a calling to teaching. And I kind of felt like cut off from that part of myself for many years. And it's really excited to be breaking that cycle that's within me that says I can't access the things that make me happy because I'm not one of the greats, which is nuts. Film is for everybody whatever kind of film you like, it's for everyone. So I really had a good time talking with Franco about it. I will put this in the show notes and mention it at the end of the show, but Franco does have um, other parts of his work that I do want to share with you. He does have two, I'm sorry, three podcasts. So one of the main ones we talk about in this episode is Left the Hose On. It is his literary podcast that he's had a couple of really phenomenal guests on. And if you're interested in the process of writing or listening to nuanced discussions of literature, I couldn't, I really couldn't recommend it more. He also has another show called Discussion Ready. And that's with his friend DeAndre. And this one is more of a fun, current times podcast, if you will, where they discuss movies and TV shows and current events, and it's really fun and hilarious, and these boys crack me up. And then he has an MMA-based podcast um, called Crosskick Pod, which I'll also put in the show notes. So if you are a fighter lover like us, definitely check that one out. Um, Up? Out. (laughs) He also has a co-host on that one, Tomas, and it's all things MMA. Uh, what else? 
If it's your first time joining me, thank you so much for being here. I'm having a really good time with this second season. I feel like I have more of a focus and a direction on the ideas I want to address and I just, I, I don't know, I have a great guests. I know cool people. I mean, it's one of the reasons, the main reason really I started the show is I wanted to share these like cool people I know with the world. So um, if you enjoyed the pod, it would be amazing if you could rate it, leave a comment, share it with somebody. By doing that, it helps others see the show. And uh, this is not an advice podcast in any way, but I hope that there's something said in the show that resonates with you or is something that you want to share with another person. Because the theme of the season two, the season two, the theme of <laughs> season two is about breaking cycles that no longer serve us. And I, I really felt, I don't know, a sense of relief after this conversation that that was the first time I've publicly discussed film since I left the film industry. Um, and that was really cool. That felt great. I feel really lucky to be able to have someone like Franco to talk to about that. Okay, onward with the episode. <laughs> I hope you enjoy. Um, so it uh, it's is... nice to meet you. I've, I really liked getting the invitation to come on the show. Um, <laughs> in our kitchen? Yeah. It was big, very formal. Been a big fan for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> when did you start being a fan of Oh, gosh, man. Probably, I think I, I, think I really liked uh, your early work. I was a big fan of. When I was a little emo. Yeah. Baby. Those announcement movies you would make at school, I liked a lot. That was a good period oh, of your work. yeah. <laughs> I did the announcements. Yeah. That was fun. I never got behind the camera, which I was a little bit sad about, but it was mm. also kind of flattering for them to be like, hey, do you want to be talent? Because nobody's ever said that to me, ever. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah. I'm a fan of your work, too. Thanks. Yeah. I think I became a really big fan uh, when I saw you perform in high school. I saw you sing, and I was like, I want to marry him. Yeah, the singing career. I loved it. It's a passion of mine. I haven't really pursued it as much. <laughs> <laughs> no, but your show is doing great. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, it's wonderful. I will put it in the show notes for people yeah. to check it out. Yeah. Um, so we had talked about before, too, because we have our own art passions that are different. But we've always been really interested in talking about film with mm -hmm. each other. Yeah, I think that it's been one of the best parts about our relationship mm -hmm. over the years is you're a visual artist with a background in film and I've always been interested in literature and writing and film is kind of the one area where those two mm -hmm. fields overlap and then we we're able to talk about both of our interests at the same time. And you're able to, I mean, I, we, we've had so many great experiences where we're watching movies and you'll point out to me something, a visual cue, something going on literally with the filming that I, I would never have seen. Mm -hmm. And vice versa, when characters are interacting and there's like a big point in the movie that goes to the next scene, I have to pause it and I'm like, what did they say? <laughs> I could not hear what they were saying. 
I didn't understand what they were implying or something like that. You can clarify it for me. Yeah, that is everybody listening. If you're thinking about getting married, one thing that's really important <laughs> is figuring out what your various skills are, what you bring to the relationship, what you bring to the table, what you bring into the table. <laughs> one of mine <laughs> that I think Moni likes is that I can understand people speaking in foreign accents. Yes. Um, even with the subtitles, sometimes I guess it's like, I don't, I still don't understand what they're saying, but, um, yeah, I think it's a good combo. And I also really feel like, at least this is my opinion, you'll have to tell me what you think, that I felt like, although I had a background and experience of working with film, that somehow it was an art I wasn't able to participate in anymore because I wasn't working on like big projects or having active shoots on uh, on my schedule or whatever. And I felt like excluded from being able to talk about it. But then once we started, it was like, oh, this is for everyone. It doesn't matter what your level of understanding of film is. It's an exciting art medium to discuss. Well, I think that there's this very real thing, and I think there's a term for it that I don't remember, but it's a phenomena where people who actually have a lot of experience in a given area judge themselves by a different standard mm. than people who just are into something casually. Right. I mean, I read all kinds of stuff. I mean, that's mostly what I do for fun is just read books um but i feel like my um experience my, my history of, of what i've read is very limited mm -hmm. because i talk to people who have read you know i've read one book by um wg seaball mm -hmm. and i've read I'm, I'm sorry rather i meet people who've read all of his books and i'm like right. man i'm such a normie <laughs> loser <laughs> which is hilarious because i don't even know who the fuck you're talking about that's how like niche well, it is most people don't but the same thing with, with you with film like right you know you feel like because you haven't been working in film for a while that it's not something that you have a lot of expertise in but then mm -hmm. it's i think this happens all the time like when any of us actually sit down with this area that we have spent a lot of time studying we're like oh i know this I, I know this yeah you know this is this is what i did for a long time even if you're not right. doing it full-time anymore you know I, okay two things one in in the episode i recorded with sydney we were talking about how like you got the degree just because you're not <laughs> writing a novel right now just because you're not shooting a movie right now doesn't mean anyone can take that away from you right and then also i was going to say so as like an artist, you have this like internal pressure of like, I'm not good enough to talk about my own field. Mm -hmm. But then also, I think it's been like compounded with fandom mm -hmm. for these like huge franchises or I don't know if that's the right word of films that you're like, oh, I'm even more so not allowed to be a part of it. But I think that I lost sight of like, because that was like the biggest films that were around at the moment. And by biggest, I mean like highest budget, selling the most amount of tickets or whatever. But then we started watching films that are important to us, yeah. like re-watching Lynch movies or movies we haven't seen before by mm -hmm. him, for example, or the stuff on the Criterion Collection and like films that are important to us. 
Yeah. And then it's like, oh, just kidding. I can talk about this because this is what I'm interested in. Like we watched that, um, what's his name, Bo Burnham? Burnham? Yeah, we watched the Bo Burnham, the new Bo Burnham special last night. And I, I don't know, it was very, to me, very avant-garde and different and exciting and weird and stupid and wonderful all in one. And it was cool, I guess, to watch something that I was excited about, not because it was like fandom or because it was huge name celebrities, but just because it was something different. Yeah, I mean, I think that was maybe the most interesting mass distributed piece of mm -hmm. art that I've seen in a long time. Totally. Like something that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are gonna watch mm -hmm. and think about, um, I, 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 it didn't really do it for me only because of the music. I yeah, think that's not your jam. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what it is like musical comedy. I, I, or like really musical, like I like musicals themselves, but like musical stuff like that, where it's like making a point through songs or right. silly, silly songs. I, I just can't get into it and I don't know why. But even so, um, I could tell that he was doing something really interesting and unique. You know, it's funny though, because I struggle with musical musicals and the points they're trying to make, like the political statements or mm -hmm. statements about class that they're trying to make within the musical. Cause I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand <laughs> what they're saying. Like the musical format. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so I didn't think I was gonna like this, but it was really different. But anyway, that's a total long intro into, mm -hmm. we're gonna talk about film. Yes. And there's some some spicy signs in the background. Enjoy, guys. We're moving in a week. Very excited about that. Yeah, we're ready. But anyway, we've been watching. Um, well, we do we do this thing over the summer where Frankel will pick a movie, and then I'll pick a movie, and we switch back and forth. Mm -hmm. And most recently, is it the most recent one that we've watched? Um. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So most recently, we watched Mulholland Drive. Yeah, which um, I'm gonna, I should pull up some facts about. Okay. Um, I'm gonna pause it for a second. Well, I mean, actually, never mind. I said I wouldn't do that. It, but it, I could read the description of the movie. Some ASMR yeah. for you guys while I'm typing. For those of you guys who haven't haven't seen so it. So it's a David Lynch movie that came out in two, 2001. Really? Yeah. I thought it was older than that. I guess that is kind of old. <laughs> I'm <laughs> old. Anyway, and it has a very long description, but it's a mystery film starring Naomi Watts and Laura Herring. They're the two main characters. Um, and it has two parts to it. The first part is what I interpret as a dream. And the second part is reality, but it's up to you, whatever you think. And it's like the relationship between the two uh, main women whose actress names I just said, but what are their character names? Do you remember? Well, that's so um, that's one of the things that's interesting about the movie is that oh, they have different names. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. So at the beginning of the movie, Naomi Watts appears as a character named um i think she's betty, is she betty first yeah, yeah betty yes that's right betty and laura elena herring appears as a character named rita mm -hmm. 
And then I think maybe like three quarters of the way through the movie, they um, all of a sudden are different characters. Mm -hmm. And this is not explained to the audience. It's kind of open to interpretation. But Naomi Watts now is a character named Diane. And Laura Elena Herring is now a character named Camilla. And in the first, I mean, they, they have a relationship in both halves. Mm-hmm. The first half is like an accidental fucked up meet cute fall in love. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, fall in love in the first half. Yeah. In the second half, you see that they actually, well, it's up to interpretation, but what I interpret is in the real world, they actually did have a long term kind of secret relationship. And then you see like the ending of that relationship. And it, there's some events in the second half that sync up with the first half too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very um, mysterious and interesting um, as Monique is alluding to the most, the most common interpretation from what I understand. And the one that I also think that I, I, I um, subscribe to is that the first half of the film is the dream of Diane who dreams of her life as Betty as this, you know, young actress who come who moves to Hollywood and is gonna, you know, live this amazing life and has this immediate amazing opportunity in an audition where she's very well received. Um, and in this first half of the film, she meets a woman who can't remember her name, um, but sees the name Rita on a poster. Interesting that she can't remember who she is. Yeah, at the, yeah. At the beginning, I at, forgot about that. Yeah, so at the beginning, she's in a car accident, and she runs into town, and she finds this house, and Betty is staying at the house, and then she, she at first believes that this woman is also a tenant, and then slowly begins to understand she doesn't know who she is, and mm-hmm. but she calls herself Rita because she sees the name on a poster. For Rita Hayworth. Yes. And so then in the second half of the movie, um, Betty and Rita become Diane and Camilla. And then you see them as different people where uh, Diane is not a young actress who has all the opportunities. She's someone who has not been able to make a successful career in Hollywood. And Camilla used to be in a relationship with her, but has basically decided to start hooking up with the director whose name is Adam Kesher mm-hmm. of this film that they're on together. And she leaves Betty for this director. Um, and Betty decides to put a hit on her. Yes. Which is Spo- interesting. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, I guess I should emphasize yeah. we're going to talk about the whole, and it's been yeah. 20 years. So Came if out. you haven't seen it, like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> it's a pre 9-11 film. Yeah. So I think that, and that's one thing that's really interesting about it is, um, I heard uh, uh, there's a podcast I like called Red Scare and they talked about this movie on an episode and how it's like one of the last big um, pre 9-11 movies. They made some really interesting points about it that and, you know you guys can oh, listen to that. I would like to listen to it. I don't remember what they said exactly, but it, it was interesting. Oh, what I was going to say though was, is so Diane puts a hit out for Camilla and the movie ends without you really finding out what happens to Camilla, but when the movie starts, the same person who's Camilla, who's also Rita, 
she gets in a car accident, but right before the car accident, she's in like a cab or whatever, and the driver is going to kill her. Yes. So you see like, this is just so interesting because after you finish it and you see the two realities, you start lining up like, oh, did she feel guilty for putting a hit out on Rita? And that's why she started this fantasy dream before, Mm -hmm. hoping it wouldn't work out and Rita would come back to her anyway. Yes. Um, It's definitely a movie I think that would require a couple of viewings, but it is really intense. So maybe a few months in between each viewing. Like we rewatch, well, I rewatch, but you watch for the first time Midsummer mm-hmm. a few days ago. And I take a couple, like six months in between, but I've seen it four times now. And by the fourth time, I felt like I actually really understood the movie. Yeah, I, I think if I can stomach it, I need to rewatch it um, because you were pointing out to me all kinds of different things that. You know, if you're just watching it for the first time, you won't notice. But then in a sound of second viewing, you're like, wow, that was really amazing how they wove that in there mm-hmm. as like foreshadowing or whatever. What do you think about, um, because this, I think, applies so much to Lynch's work that every time you rewatch it, you see something different. What do you think about that of like, we have all of these options now and all of these films who are like mediocre I mean, it's, they're not all bad, but they're not incredible because they're mass produced and produced quickly to make as much money as possible, Mm -hmm. where actually the thing we crave is to rewatch masterpieces to further um, analyze them. Do you think that we'll see more of like a drawback to that? People wanting to more deeply um, investigate, you know, top-notch films or do you think we'll still see the continuation of like mass-produced fine films um what do you think people will be drawn to that's a good question i think that um you know whatever we want to call it i think that real i I don't love this term but high art Mm -hmm will always find a way to exist. Um, That's part of, I mean, that's a big part of why I started my show is because Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of it, a lot of the things that I think are most exciting in terms of literature are happening online now. Yeah. As opposed to the big five publishers, which I still, I still read a lot of their books, but I think there's so much incredible work coming out online. Um, You know what I would say to that too, is that it's like people who have more, freedom to like Lynch he does whatever the fuck he wants he doesn't care if you get it or not Mm -hmm. he's gonna put it out there Ari Aster he just puts it out there and there's something really appealing about people doing creating authentic art like that yeah I mean I think that like Lynch still to this day no matter how you feel about him having a wide viewership Mm -hmm. is encouraging if you're someone who's working in you know, maybe a little less than mainstream form Um, because he still has a really devoted cult following even after all these years. Mm -hmm. Like the new Twin Peaks, from what I understand, was pretty successful. Uh, And Ari Aster too. I mean, he's developed a real cult following of his own. I'm sure people are waiting with bated breath for for his next film. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he has a wide distributor in A24 which, you know, I mean, I, I've also heard people say negative things about them, but I think that they've produced some wonderful movies. I mean, totally. 
Ladybird actually is maybe my favorite movie that's come out in the last 10 years. That's your like movie you've watched several times and get a yeah. new experience every time. <laughs> I watch it. I've watched it so many times. It's just so, it's just so um, like interested in the same things that I'm interested in, yeah. you know? Well, I think uh, you can really tell the difference between something that's taken its time to be put together and something that's just been put together to get to audiences as quickly as possible because you return back to those things, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I still, we were talking about this the other day, I still enjoy superhero movies. I right. mean, if they come out, I like going to see them with my friends, but I don't really rewatch them. I know people who do, like right. my my friend DeAndre, who I um, I do another show with. He rewatches these shows, or the, sorry, these movies a lot. I don't really do that anymore because I feel like I've seen it once. I'm not really going to get anything out of seeing it another time. Right. Whereas Lady Bird, I've watched that movie multiple times and just kind of soaked in the emotions and the um, the time period that it's that it's in. I mean, mm -hmm. I, that's my favorite part about it is it really captures what it's like to be 18 mm -hmm. in suburban middle America in the early aughts of the 2000s, like in the- Pre-internet, easily yeah. accessible internet. Pre-easily accessible internet, the height of the Iraq war, you know, all this uncertainty about the future. Waiting um, for something to happen. Yes, yes. I mean, that just was totally so many of our lives and- yeah seeing it represented that way on screen um and like you know kind of immortalized on screen because of the exploration of what that moment meant i just have so much admiration for her. you know it's it's so interesting because it's like these films that mean so much to us we show we so badly wish people were as excited to see it and everybody saw it like they would an Avengers movie, right? Yeah. But then on the other side, like I feel this way with a lot of the films that I like, I also think I'm glad it is the way that it is because I got to get the full version of it, like mm -hmm. the full authentic version of it. And yeah, they will develop a cult following. It's just in their nature. Mm -hmm. And we were actually talking about that with, um, not what we were talking about, but we said that about like Van Gogh or Edgar Allan Poe or like these artists that we think are like, everybody knows them, you know, they're yeah. like the leaders of the field in the sense that everybody reflects back on them or studies their work when they're introduced into these different fields or like Hitchcock. Yeah, everyone knows who Hitchcock is. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong. He was big in his time. But um, other people like Van Gogh, for example, mm -hmm. they went their whole life not knowing what their art was going to become. And I wonder I don't know. I'm just curious, I guess, what these kinds of films will look like in 20 years. Will it be like Donnie Darko with this crazy cult following? I mean, I remember when that came out and like nobody saw it or ever talked about it, but it was like my favorite movie. Yeah. Probably the first time I became interested in film. You know, it's funny that you mentioned Donnie Darko too, because that's a movie that for many years I felt myself really drawn to, mm -hmm. but didn't really understand why. And thinking about it just now, I realized that movie also is a really like accurate snapshot of a very specific moment in time. 
Totally. You know? I hadn't thought about that, actually. Yeah. When does that movie take place? That is a... That's, I think that's, like, early 2000s, right? Or no, no, no. Maybe it's, that was a 2001 movie as well. That's interesting. That is really interesting, we considering should... it's, like, about a premonition of an impending disaster yeah. <laughs> you know i mean it's kind of spooky and it began development began in 1997 which is you know pre-y2k when people felt like another shoe was gonna drop wow. we should you know it'd be really interesting if we just found a bunch of movies that okay so it takes place in 1988 huh but it has the tone of what we were experiencing yeah right before 2000 and in the early 2000s that i love seeing that okay wait i'm trying to say too many things okay a we should watch a bunch of movies that were produced in 2001 i would love that b i love that movies and shows that take place at different time periods still talk about exactly what we're going through they can't help it yeah you know because they're being written now it doesn't matter what time period you put it in you'll be exploring the stuff of that time but you can't help but explore now yeah i mean um this is one of the things i've we've talked about this before that i got from the philosopher slavoj zizek i don't know if uh i would have started thinking about it if i hadn't watched some of his videos about film Mm -hmm. but for people who don't know him he's this crazy slovenian guy wonderful yeah who seems like he's always intoxicated with something <laughs> uh, i'm not gonna speculate about what and i have no evidence of that please don't quote me on that but but i will link a video and you can decide for yourself <laughs> <laughs> yeah but he talks about how there's three layers to films mm-hmm. the first layer is the the very baseline like what is literally happening in the movie the second is the undercurrent that we all kind of talk about which is you know, what is the director or the writer, Mm -hmm. the cinematographer trying to convey to you Mm -hmm. symbolically through the film Mm -hmm. and through through like metaphors and things like that. And then there's the third layer, which is the ideology of the film. And it's kind of like, you know, the director has, the director, the writer, whoever, they have a very specific worldview that's shaped by their culture and their lives and whatever else. And that seeps into the movie without their being aware of it. So it's kind of like the unconscious part of the movie. Yeah, whether they like it or not, it's going to be there. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because we've been talking about how like um, like a director's, like, I don't know if I'm using this right, repertoire of film. So mm-hmm. they're like collection of films. It's not like they take place in the same universe like superhero movies do mm-hmm. or like Star Wars, but they take place within the same universe of that director, of that writer. Yeah. So they all contemplate similar ideas just from different angles. Like yeah. we talked about Ari Aster's grief and relationship and community. Mm-hmm. We talked about with Lynch, it's like the underbelly of society. Yeah, the the... the resilience the the balance between Mm -hmm. what i think he sees as pure goodness like forces of goodness in the world a very like americana 1950s aesthetic type of like life that he sees as like the 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 forces of good in society versus what he i think perceives as like a very evil Mm -hmm. you know undercurrent of darkness Mm -hmm. in 
America very specifically feels like Lynch in Lynch's eyes, but mm -hmm. also just like the world. Yes, totally. And how those two forces play out in each individual character mm -hmm. and the setting that they're in at large. I love that his setting is always very much so a part of the film too. Yeah. Um, and then we also talked about Nolan too, how he yeah. contemplates. That is another one where it doesn't matter when you watch it, it's like it's in this fictional world, but you really see like current political climate, his opinions on the direction of the US in the world. Mm -hmm. But then he also likes to contemplate like more abstract things like time and possibly the survival of like love mm -hmm. in these different versions of time, whether that between two friend characters, two colleagues, two yeah. people in love, you know. Well, you know, I don't know about Ari Aster, but I think like all of these great directors that we're talking about who make these really memorable films have one thing in common, which is that they're not super online like the rest of us. That is true. I mean, I think Nolan historically like does not have social media on purpose because he doesn't want it to influence him. I mean, I might be getting that part wrong, but he definitely doesn't have it. Which we have talked about how taking breaks from social is so important. Mm -hmm. Like I just took a really long break because it was totally ruining my work. Yeah. I was getting so distracted by all these other voices. Yeah, I was talking about that too. Because, um, you know, half the time when I get on Twitter, probably the majority of the time that I get on Twitter, I feel like, well, why should I even do anything, you know? Yeah, it just like kills your spirit. It's all these voices that are like making fun of you for caring about <laughs> yeah. something. Like, what yeah. the fuck is that? Even if they're not, if it's not like literally you, yeah. that you can definitely at any given moment go online and find a tweet chastising something that you're trying to do right. with your life and like right. why should anyone do this and, and like you just how embarrassing bad. could you imagine caring about anything <laughs> right uh, yeah that's i mean that's basically twitter is yeah. like one line like imagine caring about things <laughs> <laughs> and then for me i feel like instagram is like produce as much work as possible because you always need to keep people engaged but by producing stuff all the time i feel like nothing is authentic because that's not how I create at least I go through periods of producing a lot but like yeah it's exhausting and it's really emotional and painful at the same time to make new work and, yeah. and actually it's just interesting we think about like these directors that we love and every time they come out with something we're so excited and we're like man I wish there was more but also like I can't even imagine what that took out of them to make this yes that's a very good point well you know and that as it relates to Lynch is I think is really important to his work because there's a bunch of motifs that appear again and again in his mm -hmm. stuff and one of them we were talking about the other day is like this um this woman who's been clearly abused uh that seems to show up a lot in his work this and woman wandering a wandering naked woman yes uh, and she's always like very pale against like a dark background yes i mean in twin peaks it's like the morning hours but it's still dark yeah yeah and that specifically relates to i think an experience that he had when he was very very young that he wrote about 
in one of his books, which is that um, he and his brother were, uh, I think, I don't remember if he said where they were, but they saw this woman wandering through a city mm -hmm. completely naked mm -hmm. and calling out for help. And he said that like, as a little boy, you know, it was just such a confusing, strange thing. He didn't know what was happening. He had the vague desire to help, mm -hmm. but he didn't know how, um, he felt powerless. And I think that that image like carries a lot of emotional and psychological weight for him and kind of just yeah. shows up always in his work in different forms. And at least in Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks, I don't know in what other form she appears. Yeah. That character survives and yeah. it shows, and they don't survive and they're like, fine. They have this great struggle to recover, but then they do. Mm -hmm. And then their story changes yeah. in that direction too. And I think it's an interesting contemplation of like the cost of resilience, mm -hmm. which he also shows a lot in his films. Yeah. Like what's the main character's name in Blue Velvet? Jeffrey. Kyle Jeffrey. He has to have like so many times in that movie, a lot of resilience after like getting his ass kicked or yeah. almost being killed. And it shows like he does recover and his life does change for the better. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that the cost is any less. You know, and it's, it's funny because like you saying that made me think of another part of his work, which is like the way that he reuses actors mm -hmm. to me feels like it, causes themes to be carried over from one film oh. or or show to the next like yeah. Kyle MacLachlan as you said yeah he kind of becomes the hero mm -hmm. well you know it, it's actually kind of cooler because he's not necessarily the hero he's someone who's trying to be a hero yeah. and realizing that he has his own internal darkness yeah in Blue Velvet but then he reappears in Twin Peaks as Dale Cooper mm -hmm. the FBI agent who I think really symbolizes like the, you know, I think to Lynch, I'm not saying that for me, this is not, this is true. Cause if I was to write an FBI agent character, this <laughs> probably would not be true. But yeah. for Lynch, I think the FBI agent of character of Dale Cooper symbolizes like the ultimate good. Like he's yeah. the best of us. He's like, you know, the man of the law, but he's also like, so totally like average American, good person he likes coffee yeah. and pancakes pancake donuts donut he loves coffee he loves pan he loves uh, uh um breakfast food yeah he, he he's he's quirky he's and silly always and, wears a suit and tie yeah he's always dressed up and he's genuinely a good man like yeah. you see within specifically a good man when it relates to his relationships um at least in the first twin peaks because you see for instance there's a moment where audrey the character tries to sleep with him mm -hmm. And he is very kind, but he tells her, you know, Audrey, no, like, you know, I'm a grown man. You're, you're a, a, teenager. a teenage girl. Yeah. This cannot happen. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, but he's, he's not cruel about it. He no. just does the right thing. Yeah. Which is even more interesting that in like the revival, he is like trapped in this place between mm -hmm. worlds and this spirit place and trying to escape. And every time you see him, you're like... I want Dale to escape and save everybody. Yeah. But a part of being like the best of us is that the people who you can help and that you can influence, you really do make a big impact. 
Mm-hmm. By you, I mean like universal you, but you can't save everybody. Sometimes you're trapped yeah. in the red room in a spirit world right. and you're taken out of the picture for a while. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is also interesting of like, he Lynch has heroes quote in his movie, mm-hmm. but he's always playing with the idea of like, what is a hero? Is it their job to save and fix everything? Mm-hmm. Or just the people they come into contact with? Well, see, that's that is one thing that's interesting to me about Lynch is that in his films and TV shows in case of Twin Peaks, it it is always law enforcement that seems to appear as a hero. Yeah. You know, there's um, the cop who I I believe is it. I'm trying to remember. Is it a is it. um, She's my favorite actress. I can't remember. Laura Dern. Oh, yeah. Laura Dern's character. Is it her father who's the police officer in that film? In Blue Velvet? Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I mean, he is the hero of the movie. You know, he's this guiding force that shows up in Jeffrey Bowman's life at the beginning. Yeah. He shows up at the end to save Jeffrey. He, like, forgives him for Mm -hmm. these mistakes that he's made. Mm -hmm. Dale Cooper is the hero of the original Twin Peaks. Mm -hmm. The fireman appears at the end of Blue Velvet as, like, a symbol of or not at the end, but like throughout Blue Velvet is like a symbol, I think, a symbol of like safety and And, and protection. also Americana. And Americana, Of absolutely. like when we trusted the law, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really interesting because you mentioned how in the Twin Peaks revival, Dale spends the majority of the time trapped in the Red Room. Exactly. The, the, the like American, you know, good old boy yeah. hero yeah. is not available to us. Yeah. And there's a lot more, there's like mobsters and gambling and like a lot more of that seedy underbelly stuff happening in the revival. Definitely. Hmm. I think it might be time for us to rewatch it. I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, with, with Mulholland Drive. Mm-hmm. So the first, so I watched it for the first time um, and Monique knew a little about it but had not seen it and so there's this there's as we were alluding to there's this whole question throughout the movie of like the dream you know is this a dream if it is a dream whose dream is it um Monique and I both I think believe that it is uh Diane's dream um also (laughs) just a side thing Diane also is a name that shows up in Twin Peaks. Um, she's the character that's played by Laura Dern in the revival, I believe. Yeah, uh, and who Dale is communicating with on the um, on the on his radio throughout the TV show. Anyway, um, so but at the beginning of of Mulholland Drive, there's these two characters who I believe are detectives. I think one of them is a detective, at least. And they're sitting in a diner and this man, um, maybe we can look up the actor in a minute, but he, who, you know, he looks like a very average guy and the direct, the, uh, the, the um, detective that he's sitting with in this diner looks really intense. And they're just, it opens on the scene of him telling, talking about a dream that he had of this diner and how there's, um, there's this dream that he had where they were 
or where he was in this in this diner and he knew that there was like an evil man behind the diner who was controlling everything mm-hmm. and the uh detective that he's having breakfast with says well let's go look and he's like right you know he's like clearly like oh, i don't want to do that that's terrible he's idea. like just come on and so they go behind the the diner and monique heard me scream <laughs> because it was literally the scariest thing i've ever seen in a movie so they walk behind the diner and behind the diner there's this dumpster and the man is like walking up to the dumpster and the music is getting more intense and he's like looking terrified. And right when he gets to the edge of the dumpster, the music swells and is horrible like crescendo and- And longer than you're expecting it to. Way longer than you're expecting it to. Yeah. And then this awful looking creature from behind <laughs> the, the dumpster appears. And it's like, I think it's supposed to be like a bum who's just really dirty, but it looks like a man in blackface who's wearing this like horrible wig. And like, he, he just looks like a truly, like if you actually look at the guy. It was like kind of funny later. Yeah, he looked at it. He looks goofy. He doesn't yeah. look actually threatening, but like in the moment, it's the last thing you're expecting to yeah. see. I think he has red eyes or something too. And he pops out from behind the dumpster and the guy like, you know, basically has a heart attack because he's so terrified that this the, the actual evil man yeah. from his dream is there behind the dumpster. But it was so scary. And we're talking about how like Lynch movies are not horror movies, but they're horrifying in parts because he plays so much with your idea and expectations. So as this camera is pushing in, you're starting to think like, what would be the most horrible thing for me to see there? Mm -hmm. And he leaves you enough time to psych yourself out of Mm -hmm. like, what would what would be my worst nightmare? And then this character comes out and you're already so fucking scared. That <laughs> for me, I've thought about this a lot because we said we want to talk about this. The most horrifying thing for me to see to come up behind that dumpster would be myself. That would be pretty terrifying I to don't see know, oneself. Yeah, I don't know why that's like a thing I'm so scared of. That'd be the scariest thing to me. What would be the scariest thing to you? You know, that's a good question. I think like... I think something like that, like what yeah. shows up in the movie, something that you just don't expect. Yes. You know, that's the, I think that's really like the, one of the key parts about horror is, um, and Ari Aster does this really well, I think, is like seeing things that aren't supposed to be there. Yes. And they're just like as like awful looking as they could be. <laughs> or know? like as normal, they like treat it as like normal. Yeah. And it's horrifying to look at. Yes. Well, that's a big part of it too, right? With, with Ari Aster. And I think also with, yeah, with Lynch too. Yeah is there's not a lot of like surprise that the thing is there. It's like, oh, of course this is here. And we're just, it's normal that this is here. Yeah, I just accept this is here. Yeah, we were talking about how at the end of Midsummer that there, usually the acts of horror films is in the third act is when it's like the most horrifying and scary. For example, the third act of Mulholland Drive where like her, what's her name? Diane? Yeah her grandparents or whoever aunt and uncle show up and they're like trying to hug her and kiss her and she's screaming and as you're watching it it's kind of stupid but it the way he sets it up is so scary I thought about it like for several days after it was so terrifying yeah but anyway that the third act of Midsummer is actually they try to set it up is this like soothing we're just following a tradition 
we're just setting stuff up as a tradition where they're like dismembering people and like are dismembering a bear and skinning people. Like it's horrifying to look at, but they're like, oh, yeah. it's just like a traditional thing that we do. And that is so much more scary to me yes. than like, let's say a slasher film where you like know and expect that's going to happen and mm -hmm. they treat it as horror. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that Rosemary's Baby is mm. still so scary to this day is the way that mm -hmm. it's treated as like, you know, towards the ending, one of the things I always talk about yeah. is how like, there's this baby that's welcome into the world and it's like, we're the baby's family and it's just like- We're all gonna take care of it. <laughs> yeah, this is like horrific, like demon cults. Yeah. But they're like, but it's, but at the same time, uh, the visions that she's been having throughout the movie of like her baby surrounded by loved ones has been realized. Yeah, that is such a good point. I had never thought about that, that it, that adds another layer of like total disturbance where it's like, yeah. she got what she wanted, but not at all in the way that she wanted it. Yeah, definitely. Hmm. Yeah, I think we're gonna have to, um, Put like a list together of movies to watch to talk about and then maybe i can share what movies we're gonna watch beforehand if people want to watch it before yeah you guys can be in our movie club yeah franco and i really really want to do we're gonna do a couple episodes this season which mm -hmm. is exciting but we really want to do like a film series you guys will have to let us know if you're interested in that if that's something you'd want us to do we could talk about specific movies but this whole episode was supposed to be about Mulholland Drive but JK we had a lot to talk about <laughs> which is fine it yeah. can just be film episodes yeah I, I think that sounds great thank you for being on my show did you want to say anything Thanks else before me. I wanted to down? ask you what you thought about one part of the movie because I've movie? been thinking about Mulholland Drive okay I've been thinking about it and I don't know what to do with it. Okay, please. And maybe listeners know, maybe listeners have a thought about it because uh, it's just one piece of the, of the puzzle that I can't quite fit. So in the movie, um, there's a part that we didn't talk about, which is the director, Justin Thoreau, who ironically kind of looks like David Lynch. Yeah, not the real director, the director in the movie. Yeah, the director in the movie. There's a director in the movie who's trying, there's a subplot about this director who's trying to get his movie made in the first half of the movie, but is having this like, there's this presence of the mob or something like the mob that's trying to tell him who is gonna be his lead actress. Right. And the person who shows up to tell him that he has to choose this woman that he doesn't wanna choose is this character named the cowboy. Mm -hmm. And there's this really interesting like tense scene where Justin Thoreau's character drives out to uh, this, the desert at night and the cowboy is like, you know, has this like really, like tells him something about, um, you know, a man's attitude determines his, his life and I don't like your attitude. And then he tells him, if you see me one more time, or what, what does he say? Yeah, no, no, he says, if you see me one more time, that means you did good. If you see me two more times, that means you messed up. As Diane is waking up from the dream, or what Monique and I think is her waking up from the dream. So the second half of the movie? This, yeah, the second half of the movie, you see uh, just the, the, the cowboy show up and he says to her like, time to wake up, honey, or something like that. So that means you've seen him one more time. Yeah. Then at the end of the movie, Towards the end of the movie, Diane's at a party 
And in the background, I think the cowboy walks by. Yes. So you see the cowboy two more times. And okay, no, go ahead and finish. Well, the thing is like, what does that mean? Does that mean that like, there's more to the story than that this is a dream and that like there is some element of it that's supernatural because the cowboy does show up two more times Mm -hmm. or does it just mean that diane saw the cowboy and that's why he's in the dream right because um i don't know if it's i think it's the very towards the end we see that demon nan from behind the dumpster holding this blue box that mm-hmm. shows up throughout the film and it's like a to me it was like a reality portal it's like how the end the dream ended for diane mm-hmm. she basically like put camilla in this like box that she gets to keep yeah. in her dream and anyway so we see this character with this box and diane's not dreaming anymore so that's another part of me that wonders is this supernatural is this like this guy's reality mm-hmm. are these two realities actually happening at the same time and it's not a dream yeah that's a good question well because like that i mean that that what you just said brings me back to the the thing about how the characters at the beginning say that the evil man is controlling everything exactly so maybe like we were talking before about how in a lot of Lynch's movies, um, like you said, like the underbelly of like America and like the, this dark thing mm-hmm. that's that's there. Mm-hmm. Maybe specifically in Mulholland Drive, the 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 man behind the dumpster can be seen as like the underbelly of like Hollywood or entertainment. That's interesting because, hmm, because whatever this cowboy is saying, maybe the cowboy is that guy in a different manifestation but he's the one deciding the fate in those two realities because mm-hmm. in the first reality he's like well if you do what i say then everything's going to go great if you don't it's not going to be so good and we see that yeah the second reality is so much worse two two of our main characters dies one one has a hit put on them and the other one kills herself yeah and it's because they didn't like follow the hollywood rules if you will yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, that's one of the things I really like about not just this movie, but like all of Lynch's stuff is yeah. like you can easily craft an interpret. Not maybe not easily, but like you can craft an interpretation. Mm-hmm. But you can also see like, oh, actually, maybe it's this. You know, maybe it's this. And which I think is the most rewarding art, and maybe I is why I had like a falling out with films as they stand now not all films but a lot of the films that maybe you'd see in theaters or the ones that make the most money is that they give you very clear-cut answers like this is this and this is how the story ends i really really do enjoy even though they're so frustrating to me to see movies that are like well here's the story Mm -hmm. what do you think i'm really not going to give you any clear answers like yeah. You can gather what you think are very clear answers from like, let's say Mulholland Drive. Mm-hmm. But here's two weeks later and we're still contemplating what it meant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's that to me, that's the mark of, of a really great piece of art is that yeah. you, you don't just sit with it for five minutes and then you move on. It, it kind of like sticks with you and you're like, wow, what was that about? You know, what was that? And why it's like inviting to rewatch a couple more times. Like yeah. the first time I saw Midsummer it ended and I was like, what happened to me? <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> was that? And yeah. then the other day when we watched it again, I felt, 
I don't know. I felt like it was watching it for the first time, but clearly. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I've had similar experiences with Lady Bird. I, like I, yeah. it, it's not that there's things that I need to understand rewatching it, but there's things that I feel like watching it back, I understand more deeply, mm-hmm. you know, because I've had time to think about it. Mm-hmm. And then it makes you want to watch it again. Cause you're like, yeah. so here's my new theory. I wonder if that holds up. Yeah. Like here's, here's mm-hmm. an interpretation. Here's a, here's a thought I had about this scene or like this image. And... Yeah. Cause I had like some new theories about the purpose of the structure of Midsummer and like its goal of trying to lull you into this cult and to like have sympathy for mm-hmm. this cult Yeah, and how it, tried to do that successfully or the different techniques it used yeah. and it was really cool to watch it and be like oh so they use this cutaway to establish like a more dominant place and blah 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 yeah but it's fun to have a theory and then it's like you're a little scientist like a movie scientist <laughs> and like here's my hypothesis of yeah how this works and now i'm going to go investigate further yeah yeah it is fun it's a fun way to, to spend your time you mm-hmm. know if you have extra time it's like a it's a fun meaningful easy way to you know do something interesting and like put your head in a different space than it is in the in your everyday life yeah especially in the whole like social media quick consumption i'm gonna watch these 30 seconds 30 second videos for two hours and then still after i'm done not feel like i got what i wanted because that's not the point of the videos the point of them is to keep you on the app yeah so instead of watching yeah doing that i'm gonna watch something a movie i haven't seen in a couple of, i don't think i'm gonna watch donnie narco today actually and rewatch it and see what i think yeah 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 i mean that's maybe one of the best things about film you know especially now it's yeah it's totally the opposite of like short attention span culture you you have to have especially for some movies like what we're talking about you have to have attention yeah is it let me look i think the holland drive is like two and a half hours um i don't know where it says it but yeah it was a long movie mm-hmm. and midsummer was like a little over two hours long yeah box office 20 million not bad for a weird little movie <laughs> i know about uh i wonder what the budget was alternate timelines and stuff this is, it's, I feel so nerdy sometimes. So I'm like, this is the stuff that interests me. Like I want to go look at what the budget was and how long did it take to ride it and blah, blah, blah. But again, that's, you know, that's part of your background, your film experience. Cause you do know what you're talking about. Thank you. Mm-hmm. We make a good team. I think so. <laughs> well, if you guys um, are interested in hearing more episodes from me and Franco, uh, sorry, from Franco and I, uh let me know we will be doing two more episodes for this season but we have talked about doing like a special season um of just film stuff interesting um this was up for best director nominated oh it won best editing very interesting. British Academy Film oh. Awards. Looks like. well, the British Academy Film Awards it won best <laughs> editing the editing was pretty phenomenal yeah definitely okay well till next time we got it's father's day so we're gonna go do some family stuff go Mm -hmm. play some cornhole
Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, I'm glad that you were on it. Me too. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, I could, I could really geek out about film on here, <laughs> and I, I do want to do more film episodes. So if that's something that interests you guys, let me know. Um, the best way to let me know how you feel about episodes is to follow me on Instagram because I do post about the episodes, and you can let me know what you think. Give me some feedback. Um, my Instagram handle is at baby shroom art. Uh, if you want to check out my Etsy shop or my merch, I will also include that. Um, I will be updating my Etsy shop in a few, I would say like two weeks. I have a collection of things that I'm ready to release and I just need to photograph it and get it up there. And I will be updating my merch shop also. If you're interested in supporting the podcast in a more in-depth way monetarily i am active on patreon i have several levels i have a tip jar if you just want to shoot me a dollar once a month to let me know you're listening and um, you want to support and i also have different levels of clubs but any level that you join you do get a welcome letter and a welcome sticker so there is that i'm just really Looking forward to continuing recording and seeing where this season goes. I have some fun stuff lined up. And I will have some episodes that are for patrons only. So it'll be like about half of the episode is public and the other half will be on my Patreon. I am moving and will be updating our new office. So I'll be sharing that info on my Instagram and letting you know how it's going. So... Anyway, thank you for joining. I hope you have a great weekend or rest of your week, whatever your work schedule is like. I uh, hope you're enjoying the summer. We're having a nice cool night here in my little mountain town. So I'm looking forward to that because that means I'll actually sleep tonight. <laughs> and I bet, oh my gosh, when this episode finally comes out, we're going to be in the thick of it, the thick of the heat. So I should enjoy it now. Um, okay, well, I'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.